Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. If you like hearing the news from around the state here on Georgia Today, you'll probably like hearing how Georgia's agriculture economy feeds the country and the world on a fork in the road. I'm David Zelski, and on the Fork in the Road podcast, we feature stories from Georgia's farmers, fishermen, merchants, artisans, chefs, and others who help provide Georgia-grown products to folks in the Peach State and beyond. Find it online at gpb.org podcast or download it on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to the Georgia Today podcast from GPB News. Today is Thursday, December 28th. I'm Peter Biello. On today's episode, some Georgia species have rebounded significantly since being listed as endangered or threatened under the now 50-year-old Endangered Species Act. Plus, we'll look back at some of the interesting stories you might have missed throughout the year on this edition of Georgia Today. A judge has approved new Georgia congressional and state legislative districts, some likely to retain Republican majorities. U.S. District Court Judge Steve Jones, in his order Thursday afternoon, found that the legislature did comply with the court order requiring the creation of black-majority districts where vote dilution was found. The plaintiffs had argued that the maps did not increase black voting power. But Jones argued federal judges had no license to, quote, reallocate political power. He also declined to compare maps the plaintiffs preferred to the maps approved by the legislature, saying the courts must defer to lawmakers even if they do not make the, quote, optimum choice. Today marks 50 years since President Richard Nixon signed into law the Endangered Species Act. GPB's Orlando Montoya reports Georgia wildlife managers say its successes aren't just measured in species populations. Alligators and bald eagles are just two of the well-known Georgia species that have rebounded since being listed as endangered or threatened under the act. But some species have gotten healthier even without being listed. Conservation manager Matt Elliott of the Georgia Department of Natural Resources says just the threat of being listed prompted a statewide partnership that helped double populations of the gopher tortoise, our official state reptile. We've had a number of of partners that took place in that conservation initiative, and we all sort of agreed that we needed to protect more land that had tortoises. Many challenges remain, most notably with the Atlantic right whale. Overall, 80 Georgia species are listed as endangered or threatened under the Act. For GPB News, I'm Orlando Montoya. The natural world needs human help to survive. That's the spirit of wildlife conservation and the Endangered Species Act, which turns 50 today. Wildlife conservation can mean working for years without ever seeing the end of your work. But as GPB's Grant Blankenship reports, sometimes conservationists do get to see the mark they leave on the earth. The Flint River is hidden and dark in the pre-dawn hours below the entrance to Sproul Bluff Park in Epson County, where people with birding scopes and sturdy shoes have gathered, some from hours away. Okay, so getting ready to move out. Let me get your attention. A couple, like Georgia Department of Natural Resources senior biologist Nathan Klaus, spent the night in the woods nearby. You know, you all know how much I value, hopefully, the role that you played, each each one of you, in, in getting us to this place. It's been a long Most process. of the people gathered here have played some role in helping Klaus accomplish a goal he's been driving toward for 20 years, the release of six federally endangered birds, red cockaded woodpeckers, into the pine savanna just downhill from here. 
It took 20 years to get these birds here because first Klaus and others had to sculpt the right forest. Joyce Klaus is Nathan's wife. She's a wildlife scientist, too, and she says when he first brought her to places like Sproul Bluff, they weren't much to see, at least to the ecologically informed eye. Oh, yeah, yeah. When uh, Nathan and I were first dating, it would have been 17 years ago, some of the places he brought me to that he was working on, I was just like, oh, that's nice, honey. (laughs) Nathan Klaus. The first photograph I have... It's a wall of sweet gum. You sweet gums are hardwoods that crowd out pine trees, and red cockaded woodpeckers absolutely require mature living pine trees for nesting. So Klaus got to work with a very old tool. He and his team brought the fire. It had been here for hundreds of years prior, either set intentionally or left to run its course by indigenous people before Europeans suppressed it. So every other year for the last two decades, Klaus and a crew under his direction would set fires like this one, recorded in 2019 on the other side of the Flint River from where we are today. As woodpeckers need pines, pines need fire to kill those competing sweet gums and other trees, and so they can open their pine cones to release seed. That's the science behind prescribed fire. But Joyce Klaus says to burn a forest well takes more than science. But it's a lot of art, too, and it's kind of like being a landscape artist which is pretty cool. This year, U.S. Fish and Wildlife said the landscape was finally right and okayed the capture of six birds from their old forest at the Army's Fort Stewart in South Georgia. They were driven through the night to get here yesterday, which is why Nathan Klaus asked us to quietly sneak down the gravel road to the release site. You want to give them their space. They've already been through basically an alien abduction. So why subject an endangered bird to this in the first place? Bob Sargent is another Georgia DNR biologist. This is um, a case of not all your eggs in one basket, right? In this analogy, the eggs are birds. And the basket is South Georgia, where most of the state's red cockaded woodpeckers live. With concerns about issues such as climate change, now we have you know, an increase in the number of hurricanes, for instance, coming up through the Gulf. Like Hurricane Michael in 2018. You can lose a lot of cavity trees and a lot of clusters all at once. That's why red cockaded woodpeckers may be safer further north in the future. All manner of lenses trend on Klaus and Luann Creighton of the Nature Conservancy. They hold ropes running up the trees to metal screens over the woodpeckers' holes. When they pull the ropes, the holes are opened to the rising sun, and the birds bolt out of sight. Like the others, retired DNR biologist Jim Osier only caught a glimpse of the woodpeckers. But a glimpse was enough. I mean, did you ever dream you'd see? I dreamed it, but I didn't think I'd see it. Yeah, I dreamed a lot of things that I didn't think I'd ever see. When Nathan Klaus returned to the site weeks later, the birds were still here. Another cause for celebration. For GPB News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Upson County. As we wind down 2023, we're bringing you some of our most noteworthy stories from the past year. Today, we bring you this story about a new historical marker in Savannah that honors the first black woman to serve on the Republican National Committee. GPB's Benjamin Payne has the story. A new historical marker in Savannah celebrates Mamie George Williams, the first black woman in the country to ever sit on the Republican National Committee. She did so in 1924. Now, nearly 100 years later, visitors to Williams' hometown can read and learn about her just south of downtown Savannah at Dixon Park. That's where a dedication ceremony recently took place. There was a time when African-Americans and African-American children were not welcome at this park. There was actually a city petition 
written that said, we do not want the Negroes here. Well, we're here. <laughs> and Mamie George Williams is here. That's historian Velma Maya thomas Fan speaking to a large crowd of Savannah residents and community leaders. She spearheaded the effort to raise a historical marker to honor Mamie George Williams. Williams led a massive voter registration drive of 40,000 black women in Georgia shortly after the 19th Amendment was passed in 1920. On paper, that amendment granted all women the right to vote. But in reality, black women were still largely shut out of the political process. It took trailblazers like Williams to bring them in. That's what Mamie George was about. She was an African-American Republican. When she held her own meetings, she said the Republican Party has to look like everybody. So she had men, women, white, and black in her delegation. She lived on the street. So we thought we'd put this here so that Mamie could watch over it and hold this as a sacred spot. That sacred spot was then unveiled as a representative from the Georgia Historical Society gave a countdown to lift the cover off the marker. One, two, three. Before the reveal, Thomas emceed a ceremony just across the street at Carnegie Library. The library was originally founded by and for black residents when racial segregation was the way of life in Savannah and across the South. Just a little bit about the library. The Women's Suffrage Club of Chatham County was organized here in this library, June 13, 1919. Mm. <laughs> and Mamie George Williams attended several of the meetings. So we have a lot going on here and a lot to be thankful for about this tremendous and wonderful branch. Also at the library was Chastity Malloy. As of two days ago, I am the first African-American president of the League of Women Voters of Coastal Georgia. And I can certainly acknowledge Mamie for her contributions in the past for getting us to this point today. Williams' power as a political organizer ran aground during what historians call the Lily White Movement. It was an effort by white Republicans to oust African-Americans from the party, especially from positions of power. And so while Williams was the first black woman in the country to sit on the Republican National Committee and later the first woman ever to speak on the floor of the Republican National Convention, she was eventually ousted from GOP leadership in 1932. But although her national influence came to an abrupt end, her activism for voting rights endures. So says Shirley Jackson, publisher of the Savannah Tribune, a historically black newspaper. Understand who she is, who she is, not who she was. If Mamie did it, during the times when she was alive, with all of the obstacles and the roadblocks and everything that was in her path, what does that say to us today? We have those same obstacles, roadblocks in our paths today. If Mamie did it, we can do it. If Mamie did it, we can do it. The new historical marker for Mamie George Williams joins over 50 others across the state that make up the Georgia Civil Rights Trail. For GPB News, I'm Benjamin Payne in Savannah. GPB senior health care reporter Alan Eldridge filed this story on September 23rd, HIV Awareness Day, about how a diagnosis of HIV is not a death sentence. In the early 80s, when the virus first emerged, there were few options for treating it, and thousands died of its late-stage illness, AIDS. Now, doctors have treatments that can help those with HIV live healthy lives. Georgia is one of the top states in the country for new HIV infections, and one in eight people who has the disease does not know it. So experts say communities need more testing, early intervention, and treatment. 
Dr. Laura Cheever is with the HIV AIDS Bureau of the U.S. Health Resources and Services Administration. There are a lot of great prevention strategies, including PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which means someone at risk for HIV can take either one pill once a day or get an injection either uh, once a month or once every two months to prevent getting HIV. So we have what we need today uh, to end this epidemic. She says the Southeast accounts for about half of all the new HIV cases in the U.S. For GPB News, I'm Ellen Eldridge. Last May, South Georgia's only four-year medical school celebrated the graduation of its inaugural class. GPB's Sophie Gratis has the story. 53 students in the inaugural class will graduate with a doctorate in osteopathic medicine. It's the first class of future physicians to finish at the school's campus in Colquitt County, which opened in 2019. Interim Dean of the school, Robert Lloyd, says after graduation, students are heading in a variety of directions. Things like anesthesiology, general surgery, orthopedic surgery. And also primary care specialties. Family medicine, pediatrics, OBGYN. And I know the students are are very excited. This is a milestone for them. Lloyd says 13 students from the inaugural class will stay in Georgia for medical residencies, with nearly half placed in rural hospitals. PCOM Moultrie is the only medical school in South Georgia. For GPB News, I'm Sophie Gratis in Macon. In November, GPB's Christy York-Wooten spoke with Mickey Dolans, the only surviving member of the Monkees, about his visit to Athens, Georgia, and his new EP of REM songs. So let's talk about Athens. I want to first know kind of what you were expecting before you got there. Had you, I'm sure maybe you had been to Athens before or never had been? No, no, uh, never had been. Um, and what I was expecting originally was kind of a small, little, intimate <laughs> um, uh, meet and greet at um, at the record store. Um, one of my um, assistants, uh, Jody Ritson, um, who helps with promotion and, and uh, works for me in uh, a bunch of different things, uh, she, uh, after we announced that the record would, uh, the EP was going to be released and uh, she saw the cover and, you know, we got Buck Street Record Store to to uh, agree to be on the cover. And then she's the one that came up with the idea to do an old fashioned in store. And you know, to be honest, I didn't even think record stores even existed anymore. Um, but uh, it it uh, obviously it does, and so it was her idea. And she said, you know, let's just show up. We'll um, uh, uh, you know uh, have a, a, a little dinner with the the Wall Street people and whoever else wants to show up, and you know we'll sign a few autographs and and sign some uh, some merchandise, some of the EPs, a little photo op, shall we call it in front of the store, uh, which is the cover of the EP. Well, all of a sudden, it just snowballed. Um, uh, J- uh, Jody started getting an uh, enormous amount of uh, uh, feedback and responses from, from fans in the area uh, who wanted to be there. And the record store started to get inundated with phone calls. And pretty soon, it, it just exploded. And... and um, uh, Jody called the mayor's office and 
uh, in, to inform them that I was going to be there. And he turns out to be a big fan and wanted to give me a key to the city. And then it just snowballed and got bigger and bigger and bigger. But I knew it as we were going along. But still, nothing really could have prepared me for the um, <laughs> that kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, turnout. It was, you know, quite quite wonderful. And, and, and of course, you know, the wonderful participation of the guys from REM. That was a wonderful, wonderful, uh, you know, experience. One of the things that um, captivated me when I wrote, you know, when I was there on the day and and wrote about it was that you don't come across too many moments like that anymore in music that have a spontaneous feel. Obviously, it was pre-planned, like you said, but had this kind of spontaneous feel where just the the feeling of the music and everything kind of takes over. And my theory was that um, a lot of people especially and Athens isn't super rural, but you've got a lot of folks who don't live in Atlanta or don't live in big cities and never got the opportunity maybe to see the monkeys in recent years or, you know, just remember the monkeys from childhood. But to have these two things converge with REM and you being there was, it's like almost the town couldn't handle it. You know, everybody was so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as you say, it was kind of a, a spontaneous plan, <laughs> I guess. I mean, the plan was just to show up at the record store and uh, for a photo op, basically. And uh, there I am, Mickey Dolan, show, you know, in front of the record store where... Uh, the members of REM, Michael and Peter, met, and it, it started the, the ball rolling for REM. And that was it. I mean, that was the plan. And, uh, the, it, you know, uh, and but in my experience, um, when things like this do happen, you can't buy this kind of promotion and publicity. When things happen from sort of, I guess you'd say, a grassroots, um, you know, uh, uh, feeling. Uh, but that's kind of how I've always operated. You know, I am um, in, in my basically in my entire career. I've never been one to, you know, beat a drum very loudly, so to speak. It's no pun in, in, intended. Right, right. <laughs> or, um, or flog a dead horse, <laughs> you know. Um, also, I've just, that's just the way that I've always sort of done business. And uh, you know, you just can't buy this kind of thing that happens spontaneously. And I have found in the past, and yes, I mean, maybe I have tried, you know, to promote stuff. And you do. I mean, I have a publicist and I do promote stuff. But, um, you know, you, you, you know and you hear and you see uh, people that have obviously spent thousands and, or millions, whatever, trying to promote something and create a buzz that really just isn't there. Right. Um, and that's, I guess, just intuitively, that's the kind of thing I've always, I've always done. And I, maybe some of that comes from the fact that I was born and raised into a showbiz family. Right. And, and a family that um, was not your typical, my mom and dad were both actors, singers, um, they met doing a play here in Hollywood, but neither of them or our family was 
uh, got uh, was into the, I guess you'd just say typical Hollywood Beverly Hills showbiz world in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. We lived out in the valley. We had horses and a ranch and chickens. My mom, my mom was from Austin, Texas, very down to earth. And my father was off the boat from Italy, literally. And um, so very down to earth. And um, I, you know, I grew up in that kind of a environment. There was no showbiz stuff and friends and people around the house. When I did my first series, Circus Boy, in the 50s, I was like 10 years old. And when I would do the, the show, I'd be filming uh, uh, all day on location, uh, shooting the television show. And on the weekends, I still had to clean the pool, you know. <laughs> so, so I think that oh, you add all that up, and and you know that kind of answers uh, uh, your question. I I don't know. I can't even remember what the question was. Yeah, no, no, totally <laughs> it does. And I think that's what was so charming about it all was just. Um, just how it, it was just spontaneous. Um, but I did want to talk to you a little bit about the REM songs themselves and on the EP and kind of, do you have any memories of when you first heard REM um, back? I don't know. It would have been in the eighties, I presume, but like, just, you know, when you first. Oh, you... I'm not, I'm not that old. My, my mother loved our REM. <laughs> That's a joke. Um, <laughs> no, of course, of course I do. Yeah. Um, I actually, uh, I was living in England, and um, uh, at the time when they were huge, and they were big in England. They had a you know a couple of records there, and of course I re I remember. Um, <clears throat> I I don't know. I guess in in order of <laughs> remembership, I would say losing my religion, of course. Uh, Man on the Moon, then uh, eventually. But, um, you know, of course, I, I, but I was not into music in, in England. I was producing and directing television shows and, and films and commercials and music videos. I, uh, I was a full-blown producer-director since the, from the mid-70s until uh, late 90s, uh, sorry, late 80s. Um, about 12, 15 years. And I really wasn't uh, doing much music. You know, I was listening to, you know, I'd listen to BBC radio, you know, occasionally, but um, no, I wasn't really much in the music, but of course I'd heard of R.E.M. who hadn't, you know, um, but I couldn't tell you exactly, you know, a date or time, time stamp it, you know, when I first <laughs> heard their first song. How did you choose the songs for the EP? Well, it started with, um, well, it started actually, uh, interestingly enough, with the original creator and producer of The Monkees named Bob Rafelson, who went on to, of course, as you may know, became uh, an incredible film uh, director of mm. uh, five easy pieces, King of Marvin Gardens, so all Jack Nicholson films. Uh, well, Bob was the original creator of the Monkees. He and uh, his partner, Bert Schneider. And Bob was kind of the creative uh, force behind it. Well, anyway, we did the Monkees, but we kept in touch over the years. 
And over the years, I had heard uh, through the grapevine that REM, particularly Michael Stipe, there'd been some sort of an influence, some sort of a, a appreciation of the monkeys. And, you know, I kind of take that stuff with a grain of salt unless I'm hearing it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Um, but over the years, I had heard that. And then a few years ago, before Bob passed away, he sent an email out to all of us. And he said, I just heard this or, or read this great article that Michael Stipe had done saying how the monkeys had been an enormous influence, and particularly on shiny, happy people. Mm. And I, like I said, I'd heard rumors about that. And I, I remember going, wow, this is, that's very cool, you know. And um, there's another mutual friend of, of, of mine named Gary Strobel, uh, uh, an associate, um, who called me up. Uh, he read the article and he said, Mickey, you know, this is very cool. You should re-record this song, Shiny Happy People. Uh, this was a, a number of years ago, a few years ago. And um, I said, you know, it's a great idea, but I don't have a record deal right now. I, I, I'm not, you know, focused on that right now. And just to do a one-off is, is kind of tricky. And where's the distribution and blah, blah, blah. And um, kind of left it at that. Well, I got involved with this record company, 7A Records, who I've done a couple of projects with now. And we'd done the uh, Dolan Sings Nesmith. Uh, album. I don't know if you heard of it or heard of it, mm -hmm. but that was a couple of years ago, yep. um, uh, produced by Christian Nesmith, uh, Michael's son. Right. And it got, it was very well received, um, this album. And um, again, kind of a grassroots thing. It just sort of took off. And um, 7A Records approached me, um, again, you know, during that period and said, listen, we should follow this up with, with something. What do you have in mind? And a few, a few ideas were bantered about. And one of them was REM to, uh, to, to cover some REM tools, uh, tunes, because he had heard uh, the, the head of uh, 7A Records, Glenn Gretlin, he'd heard that uh, about REM and the monkeys and shiny, happy people and all that. And so we started to listen to, to stuff. And the first name that came up to produce was Christian Nesmith because of his ability to re-envision material, which he did, I think, uh, in an exemplary way on Dolan Sings Nesmith. I don't know if you ever heard any of those tracks, but there really are some amazing uh, versions of Nesmith's tunes that are that are quite different from the original, but still work. It's not just different for the sake of being different, but really work. Um, and it's difficult to do, with especially with uh, songs that are very, very well known. But Christian, I think, did an incredible job on on the Dolan Sings Nesmith album. So I went to him because when I do cover material, and I have over the years, um, I don't just want to do a karaoke cover version, uh, even though I, some songs like so many Beatles songs I would love to cover. But how the hell do you cover a Beatle tune? I mean, it's it's very seldom been done successfully. And the two times that come to mind were both Joe Cocker, 
you know. Um, it, <laughs> yeah. It's very difficult when it's such such a enigmatic. I mean, it's you know so well known. But went to Christian and he, he said, well, of course, I knew who R.E.M. Uh, are. Let me start listening. So he started listening to songs. I did. And so did Glenn. And we kind of came up with a short list, maybe 10, 12. And that got narrowed down. And then in, in the final analysis, I <clears throat> um, basically left it up to Christian. Um, once I'd made my uh, my suggestions of the, my short list, um, th there's an old saying in uh, in England that I learned when I was there directing and producing. Um, uh, you don't keep a dog and bark yourself, and it just means you don't kind of micromanage. And that's one of my business principles when I am uh, producing uh, something, is you. You hire somebody and you give them their uh, instructions and you give them their head, like you give a horse, you know, that term. You you give them their lead and a loose lead and you let them get on with it. And you don't keep a dog and bark yourself. And so I left it up to Christian mainly to make the final choices and then to go away and come up with his ideas. And he did. And he came back to me with some demos, just guitar, you know, click track demos of what he had in mind for a few songs. And that got narrowed down. And then, you know, basically he went off. This was, you know, a tail end of COVID. Um, uh, so he just went off and worked by himself, which which he, he, he is wont to do. I think he works very well just by himself because he plays every instrument you can think of. Um, and uh, he went off and came back with these uh, wonderful, wonderful tracks that we listened to and tweaked. And then, and then I went in. Uh, well, and he had backgrounds done, back, back, background tracks and vocals, background vocals. And then I went in and, and did the lead vocals for over a period of time. And there you go. And that's it for this edition of Georgia Today. If you want to learn more about any of these stories, visit gpb.org news. And if you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, do it now. We'll be back in your podcast feed tomorrow. And if you've got feedback, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email. The address is georgiatoday at gpb.org. I'm Peter Biello. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.